This is Next Bite, a three-part series from Chobani about change makers on the farm, in the kitchen, and in the fight for better food access. I'm Katie Wiggin, a producer at T-Brand Studio, where we helped find the people who are reimagining the future of food. And today's story comes from Sean Sherman, a James Beard Award-winning chef based in Minnesota. My name is Sean Sherman. I am a chef based here in Minneapolis. I'm also a tribal member of the Ogallala Lakota Sioux Tribe on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota, where I was born and raised. Sean's also the co-founder of the nonprofit Natives, which stands for North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. And the flagship project of Natives is the Indigenous Food Lab, a culinary training center and professional kitchen in Minneapolis. Sean and his team are training people to cook with indigenous ingredients. They're also distributing thousands of meals every week to tribal communities who need healthy food. We still see a lot of rural indigenous communities out there who are still struggling immensely with food access issues, and we really want to change that. Sean has a deep knowledge of these problems and how to solve them. As a kid in South Dakota, he would roam the Great Plains and explore the Black Hills, learning how much these lands had to offer. We did a lot of dangerous things like spelunking in old ghost mines that we would find as kids and go crawling deep into. There's so much connection out there, and I just loved, like, crawling up all the rocks and the cliffs. I got to learn how to identify a lot of the berries that were growing out there. There was raspberries and blackberries and choke cherries, and we just had a childhood that a lot of uh, other Americans, I don't think, had. But harvesting fruit was just one part of Sean's childhood when it came to food. That's because when Sean's family needed groceries, or when he and his sister went to school, the food choices they had were extremely limited. I'll let Sean tell the story from here. We would be the last kids to show up at school because we lived out in the country pretty far, and we'd get picked up by this big yellow 1970-something suburban, and that was our school bus. And as soon as we got there, we would have to have some breakfast, which usually consisted of just a box of uh, cereal, uh, just like a little single serve. And a lot of times it was the powdered milk, and we'd just have to pour it right into the bag in the little single serving box and eat it. We were forced also to drink a shot of juice, and it was either orange juice or tomato juice. But since we were always the last kids there... We were always forced to drink this really disgusting room temperature tomato juice that's been sitting in a paper cup for a couple hours. (laughs) I still have issues with tomato juice today. The Commodity Food Program was started by the U.S. government to feed like hospitals, school systems, military, and of course, sending food out to a lot of indigenous communities. So when I was growing up with the Commodity Food Program, it was just staples. In our cupboard, we had silver cans with black labels, and they would just say things like beef with juices or canned salmon or whatever it might be. Lots of canned vegetables and a lot of canned fruits. And it's really hard to find healthy selections off of those lists. We had the one grocery store in Pine Ridge. There was no restaurants in Pine Ridge. If that's your only source of nutrition, then there's no wonder why there's such high rates of diabetes and obesity and heart disease and illnesses that are coming directly from this nutritional source. 
I started to work in restaurants when I had just turned 13. I was a bus person, I was a line cook, I was a dishwasher, I was a prep cook. I just found a lot of friends in the industry and I would always be warm in the winter and there would always be food around me. So those were a lot of pluses. When I had the epiphany of doing the work that I'm doing now, I was actually um, living in Mexico. I took a little hiatus from the chef world because it can be really intense. I, you know, basically bought a one-way ticket and brought a guitar and a backpack down and I landed in this little beach town called San Pancho, which is on the Nayarit coast just north of Puerto Vallarta. Down by the beach, there was always these native Mexican people selling some of their beadwork and crafts and I was always just kind of awestruck by vibrant colors, animal spirits and plant spirits kind of woven into these pieces and I just saw a lot of commonality between them and where I grew up on the reservation with just how rich a lot of our stories are and our legends and the folk tales and the songs and just the spirituality of it all I guess. I became curious about their foods, about what they're eating, and I was researching like how they were living in these jungles and what kind of plants and animals they were kind of eating. But it started to get me thinking about my own Lakota ancestors. And then I remember, you know, starting to look around. It's like, gosh, I just, you know, I don't really know that much about my own Lakota food. I couldn't find any Native American restaurants. I couldn't find any cookbooks. When I started thinking about, you know, what was left alive as far as indigenous foods where I grew up, there was a handful of recipes, like simply air-dried meat, and you know, we called bapa. There was a soup made out of intestines called taniga. Of course, there was the berry sauce wojapi, which was traditionally made with the choke cherries that we would harvest. But, you know, in reality, there weren't that many indigenous recipes left alive. Because I remember even when I first started talking to my mom and she'd be like, oh, I have a cookbook from Pine Ridge. You know, you can have that. It's got all the Lakota recipes. But, you know, I'd look through that cookbook and it was just a bunch of home-style foods that were from the 60s and 70s. And I was just like, thanks for this book, but I'm really trying to find recipes that don't have cream of mushroom soup in it. You know, so I'm trying to find foods that are a little bit more authentic. And there was just a complete absence of it. A lot of this was a journey that I took because it uh, relates directly to me and my family and the history of my family what my Lakota ancestors were directly eating and how they were processing foods. And I just wanted to create a safe place to kind of harbor this knowledge base. And it's going to take quite a few steps, really putting a lot more community effort back into our foods. So the Indigenous Food Lab, we're based inside this large multi-ethnic food hall that used to be a, a Sears Tower. So it's the tallest building in South Minneapolis. The work that we're attempting to do is to work directly with tribal communities, helping them to develop their own culinary operations so they can create their own Indigenous food for their own community and help them give them the tools to create their own recipes and menus, utilizing their language, utilizing foods that's regionally specific and culturally specific to them. We were going to have an Indigenous Food Lab nonprofit restaurant attached. But unfortunately, when the pandemic first hit, everything was just gone. Like, everything was gone. As the pandemic continued to go on and kind of not get any better, just continued to get worse, we were really worried about the, the food access. 
especially with the homeless populations back in 2020 when we started going. We'd show up to some of these encampments sometimes and people would just be like, oh, thank God you have some fresh vegetables, you know, and some fresh stuff because people would just literally drop off garbage bags of like white bread. That's not nutrition. And so we wanted to make sure that healthy nutritional food was getting out there and we just wanted to normalize it. So we started making these grain bowls. It was a mix of house-made hominy mixed with hand-harvested Minnesota wild rice coming directly from tribes, quinoa and some native beans, and then lots of farm-fresh vegetables, indigenous proteins like venison and duck and bison. We were doing 400 meals a day. And then as winter came around, we grew to be doing 10,000 meals every week mass normalizing indigenous foods for not only our immediate community around the city, but also stretching out to tribal communities across the state. So if somebody comes up who doesn't have a home or doesn't have a job or doesn't have money, like if they want some food, we want to create a system where they can have some food. We don't need a system that's just set up to feed the rich. And our goal is to open up more indigenous food labs in cities eventually all across the nation so we can have a food lab in D.C. or a food lab in Seattle or Albuquerque or Denver or anywhere, but each one becoming a regional center point to develop more indigenous food operations. And especially if we can get those communities to start with more community gardens, get them access to more indigenous seeds. We can create food that can just be free for people because we can just put food everywhere if we want to. Instead of having something like a lawn, which is a fairly pointless monoculture that doesn't do anything any good for anybody. So we can have berry trees and nut trees and wild gingers and wild onions and all sorts of wild flowers. And I really feel like that's going to be such an important piece of the future as we move forward. We want to leave the world a better place than what we showed up with. I remember when I was growing up and had just mostly the commodity food items, having to live off of government powdered milk and government cereal. I want the next generation of kids to have better access out there. And I want to see a lot of education around why their indigenous ancestors' knowledge is so important when it comes to that connection of the world, the connection to the plants. We can use ourselves as this kind of support hub. We can train kitchen people, we can train entrepreneurs, we can train tribal members who want to be a part of this and just create a new generation of people pushing forward. And eventually we can cross these colonial borders so we can have indigenous food labs in Canada, down in Mexico, South America, Hawaii, Australia, New Zealand, Southeast Asia, India, Africa. We see this growing on a global scale. I feel pretty lucky with the role that's kind of developed because I started off really as a chef and I feel like we're at the era now of reclamation. We feel like we can help create a large demand and help create a new generation of indigenous chefs and, you know, just tie it all together a little bit to help make some really important social change. On the next episode of Next Bite, we'll meet Jasmine Crow, a tech CEO who's turning surplus food into free meals and delivering them to families in need. The businesses were already paying to throw the food away. That's all I needed to see. And I was coming to them as another service that would, instead of having them pay to throw it away, divert it to make sure that people didn't go hungry, to make sure that you were reducing your waste, improving your carbon footprint. Next Bite is made by Chobani.
Thanks for listening.